Good evening, Dharma friends. Is this the volume okay? Yeah, great. <clears throat> so last week um, I spoke about uh, taking in the good or kusala, what is wholesome and beneficial, as a uh, really useful foundational orientation to practice. And in doing that, I was wanting to emphasize the attitude of uh, receptivity as a way of leaning back into what's here rather than uh, leaning forward into an imaginary future, which is the activity of clinging. And I also used the image of a, of a satellite dish, of uh, being receptive like an enormous satellite dish. Um, but, of course, satellite dishes don't just receive, they also transmit. So I wanted to also speak about the other side of this, the other side of the coin, if you like, um, the practice of giving, so that there's a practice of taking in the good and then there's a practice of giving it out again. And it feels like uh, an, an appropriate time to do this because uh, all day today, uh, many of the teachers and the board of IMS have been in meetings. And as um, Joseph was saying, that all these people are giving uh, freely their time and energy to support what we're all doing here because they love and value what we're doing. And also uh, to speak on this subject of giving or generosity as a follow-on from Bonnie's talk uh, on cultivating the paramis. So generosity, of course, is one of the, the paramis. But the, the idea to do a talk on this actually came to me when I was uh, teaching a retreat earlier this year at Spirit Rock. And as you're all probably aware, there's a, a tradition in, this, uh, in these centers of at the end of the retreat, uh, somebody gives a short talk on dana. And it was my turn to give the dana talk at the end of this retreat that I've been teaching at Spirit Rock. And I was down at the bottom of the hill where the new teacher's accommodation is and just uh, thinking as I began to walk up the hill, what was I going to say about dana? And I was reflecting on all the things that uh, we all know and uh, frequently hear about, about dana, that it's the first part of the threefold training of dana, sila and bhavana, generosity, ethics and mental development that make up the Buddha's path and that it's the foundational heart quality on which the possibility of a spiritual growth and development really rests. And I was at the bottom of the, the hills in Spirit Rock. Um, Spirit Rock, the, the, the teacher's accommodation and, and the dining hall are at the bottom of a hill and the meditation hall is at the top of a hill. So there's a lot of walking up and down hills and you also have the hills around you. And because I'm someone who used to do a lot of mountain climbing when I was younger, I often reflect on practice with the image of climbing a mountain. And when we think about climbing a mountain, we, we think in terms of 
passing through certain stages and gradually leaving the lower slopes behind us and uh, going up further towards the summit. And mountains are basically pyramid-shaped, aren't they? So they get narrower towards the top. And we have the sense of we're going up towards something. And as I was looking at the hill at Spirit Rock and, and sort of thinking about this, this image of the gradual path, I suddenly uh, thought about looking down on a mountain from above and looking at it with a bird's eye view and seeing that as you, if you look down on a mountain, it's not pyramid-shaped at all, but it's like a, a big circle or amoeba or whatever, and that the base is the widest part of it So the base is something that actually encircles and encompasses the whole of the mountain. And if we look at generosity in that way, then it becomes not something that we leave behind as we progress up the path, but it's actually something that contains and holds the whole of our practice. In other words, it's it's present through the whole of the journey So I was thinking about it like being a kind of bass note or a hum that underpins or could underpin absolutely everything that we do in this practice. And I was just asking myself what would change in my practice if I really made this conscious and if I held dana in this way. Because I found myself asking how much generosity is present in my practice moment to moment. And would that make actually a difference to what I was manifesting right here and right now in this heart and mind? And so I thought I wanted to just contemplate that for myself and also thought it would be nice to talk about dana, not just at the end of a retreat. So that's what I want to do this evening is share a few thoughts on this subject, what came to this, this heart and mind But maybe to say a few basic things, first of all, uh, dana is so important that it's the very first thing in the Buddha's description of what uh, samaditi or right view is. He says, there is what is given, what is offered and what is sacrificed. Uh, So these intentional actions of giving, offering and sacrificing They really matter. They really make a difference in the world and they are what create our karma. And dana in this way originally refers to the giving of material things. But of course there are many other things that we can give besides material things, aren't there? Like our time or our attention, our energy, our presence, information and knowledge encouragement, understanding, and love. And also one thing that uh, is often taught is that uh, we also can give the gift of safety. Our observation of sila um, gives the gift of safety to an infinite number of beings by practicing ethical restraint and making ourselves safe to be around, at least in regard to ourselves, we're offering the gift of safety to an infinite number of beings. And then, of course, the highest gift of all is said to be the Dharma. 
And this is why that the most beneficial form of giving is giving in support of the Dharma. Giving to cultivate the path in ourselves and giving to others who are genuine, genuinely cultivating and expressing the path in their lives. But one of my favorite uh, writings on giving comes from outside the Buddhist tradition. It comes from the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran in his, in his poem, The Prophet, where he says, you give but little when you give of your possessions. It is when you give of yourself that you truly give. And so I'm going to be quite um, generous in my definition of dana for the purpose of this talk, because I think this understanding of giving of ourselves actually moves, moves uh, generosity into the realm of two other heart qualities that are also fundamental to our practice. And one is, is metta. And I was thinking that metta, uh, when you, you know that we have a, um, pure and applied mathematics, and I was thinking that generosity, you could say, is the applied form of metta. You have pure metta and applied metta. And generosity is a, a form of applied metta. And then the other, the other realm that I think, um, the other quality that uh, is very much connected with giving, which we also don't talk very much about, is the quality of devotion. So I'll speak a little more about these uh, later. So this, this quote from the prophet from Khalil Gibran continues, There are those who give little of the much which they have, and they give it for recognition, and their hidden desire makes their gifts unwholesome. And there are those who have little and give it all. These are the believers in life and the bounty of life, and their coffer is never empty. There are those who give with joy, and that joy is their reward. And there are those who give with pain, and that pain is their baptism. And there are those who give and know not pain in giving, nor do they seek joy, nor give with mindfulness of virtue. They give as in yonder valley the myrtle breathes its fragrance into space. Through the hands of such as these, God speaks, and from behind their eyes he smiles upon the earth. And if God is a word that you can't relate to, then maybe try substituting something like emptiness and love. So there are ways of giving, of course. We might give joyfully, we might give reluctantly, with difficulty, with ease, expecting rewards, with strings attached, as we say. I don't know if you say that so much here. Unconditionally mindfully, unmindfully, with wisdom that understands the benefits of what we're doing, and with equanimity, with effort or spontaneously. And all of these could be, these questions, how are we giving, could be applied to the question, how am I giving myself to my practice?
So in the Anguttara and Nikaya, the Buddha says that there are three qualities of a noble giver. A noble giver is one who is happy before, during and after giving. Before giving, he's happy anticipating the opportunity to exercise his generosity. While, he's, while giving, he's happy that he's making another happy by fulfilling a need. And after giving, he's satisfied that he's done a good deed. So last week I mentioned the potter Gatikara, who uh, was this poor but very generous supporter of the previous Buddha, and who rapture and happiness never left him for more than a month, nor his parents for more than a week after he gave because he was someone who had understood and practiced the Buddha's teaching and therefore really understood the value of his support for the Buddha and he was also able to fully take in the blessing of his own generosity generosity is often expressed in the suttas as giving and sharing And I particularly like the concept of sharing because it it weakens the perception of self and other in the act of giving. So just as when we practice all the Brahma Viharas, we include ourselves equally. It's the same with generosity. So cultivating generosity is not about giving in a way that harms ourselves. And it's also defined as non-stinginess, which is the, op- uh, the, the antidote to self-centeredness. So the Buddha said, if people only knew, as I do, the results of giving and sharing, they wouldn't eat without having given, nor would their minds get stained with selfishness. Even if it were their last bite, they wouldn't eat without having shared it if there was someone who could receive their gift. And how is a person accomplished in generosity? He or she dwells at home with a mind devoid of the stain of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in relinquishment, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. And when the suttas speak of generosity like this, of the virtue of generosity, they often use the word, not dana, but chaga. And chaga is often found in the list of five virtuous qualities of faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom. Dana is the practice of, uh, the practical act of giving, and chaga is the generous attitude in the mind. And the word chaga literally means relinquishing or giving up or abandoning or letting go. In other words, unselfishness. And it's also one of the words, incidentally, that's uh, used for letting go of craving in the third noble truth, the truth of the cessation of suffering. So I also wanted to share the story of of one remarkably generous person that I heard recently. And I heard this on a a radio program that we have in the UK that's actually been going for decades called Desert Island Discs. 
And on this program, um, different interesting people, sometimes they're celebrities, they're well-known people, and sometimes they're just interesting um, members of the public who aren't well-known, are interviewed and they're asked to, there's a very skilled interviewer who does this, and they're asked to choose seven pieces of music that illustrate important things to them in their lives and to speak about why they've chosen this piece of music and what it is what it's associated with uh, with for them and it's really just a way of having a conversation about their lives and recently i heard one of these programs um on interviewed on one of these programs a surgeon an english surgeon called david knott and he's a thoracic surgeon who works in different London hospitals. Actually, I say he's English, but actually he's, I believe that his father was Burmese and Indian and his mother was Welsh. But he, for the last 20 years or so, has spent several weeks every year volunteering as a surgeon in war zones. So he's spent a lot of time in, in Gaza, recently in Syria and all over the world uh, just volunteering as a, an emergency surgeon in areas of where there's, um, you know, tremendous um, fighting going on. So he was telling a story of um, being in Syria some time ago and operating on a fighter who'd been wounded and he was bleeding profusely, and this operation was necessary to save this man's life. And he was there with a, a Syrian colleague. And while they were in the middle of the operation, a group of soldiers with uh, AK-47s burst into the operating theatre. And his Syrian colleague said to him, just under his breath, just don't say anything, because he didn't speak much Arabic, he, he only spoke English. And it quickly became apparent that these were IS fighters who had burst into the room. And if they'd have discovered that he was English, you know, who knows what would happen. But his colleague had the presence of mind to say, you know, you mustn't disturb the senior surgeon. He, he's, he has to really focus to save this man's life. And so the, the soldiers stayed for a while and then they left. And David Knott said his legs were just shaking unbelievably as he was, but he still performed this, this <laughs> surgery and managed to save this man's life. And then the interviewer was asking him how he felt about doing this. How, how did he feel about operating to save the life of an Islamic State soldier, not knowing what that soldier might go back and do in the future? And what David Knott said is that, firstly, that his experience of uh, treating people in these areas had made him realize that actually we're all just human beings. And he had no idea what might happen to this man in future, but he knew that actually his job was to save his life at that time. And he said, maybe he will find out, and I hope he finds out, that it was a Christian surgeon who saved him. Yeah. And that it may be possible that something will change in his heart and something different will happen in future. And I think there's a great generosity here in, in everything that he did, but also particularly 
in seeing that capacity to see the potential in every human being and of truly aspiring to the best for them and actually holding that as a possibility in our mind rather than writing anybody off. And on another occasion, he was in Gaza and he was operating on a seven-year-old Palestinian girl who had been, again, seriously injured. And they were in the operating theatre and suddenly some of the hospital staff came in and said, we have to leave right now. We've just heard that this hospital's going to be bombed in two minutes. It was one of the times when, um, during the war with Israel. And... He, he had this seven-year-old girl on the operating table in front of him. And if he left, he knew that she would die. And he reflected for a moment and he thought, I have no, I have no family. He had no partner. His parents were gone. I think he had no siblings. He said, I don't, there's nobody who, you know, who really, really needs me. I'm going to stay and there was an anaesthetist with him, and he said to the anaesthetist, you go, if you, you please go, but I'm going to stay. And the anaesthetist said, no, I'll stay with you. And in fact, as it turned out, that the hospital wasn't bombed, and he managed again to save this young girl. So he had many stories like this, and then the interviewer said to him, are you not, you know, do you not suffer from... The, from the, the trauma of being around all this really intense uh, human suffering and in all these life-threatening situations. And he said, yes, I absolutely do. And sometimes it's very difficult for me for many weeks when I come back. And then he told another story of a year or so ago. And he found himself, because he's becoming quite well known for this work, he came back and he he found himself a a week after having been in Aleppo, working in the hospitals in Aleppo, he found himself at Buckingham Palace having lunch with the Queen. (laughs) And he was sitting next to the Queen at lunch. And I don't know this from personal experience, but apparently if you have a formal meet, you know, if you have lunch or dinner with the Queen, there's an etiquette. So she'll talk for maybe for one course to the person on her right. And then you know at a certain time that she's going to talk to you and it's the time that she will talk to you. And it came time when it was the t- Queen's turn to t- turn and talk to him and he was to make conversation with the Queen. And she said to him, I hear you've just come back from Aleppo. And he found himself completely unable to speak. He just didn't know what to say or what to do. He was just, you know, he was so discombobulated by this, what everything that he'd seen and now this experience of sitting next to the Queen having to make conversation over lunch and he said that she could see that he was really traumatized and that he was really struggling and she said to him would you like me to help you and he said yes and she turned around and gestured to one of the the courtiers or the court staff who were waiting around and they opened the door and let her corgis her her dogs into the into the dining room and she said will you open up that box over there and the box was opened and brought to her and it was full of dog biscuits and she took a dog biscuit and broke it in half and gave it to David Knott and the two of them he said proceeded to just sit there and feed and 
stroke the corgis for the next 20 minutes. And he was so moved by how the kindness and the humanity of, of the queen, of this very um, important and dignified person. And he just told the story so beautifully. I mean, if you weren't on retreat, I would play you the whole thing. <laughs> but uh, what was also really touching is how alive he was to appreciating the kindness and the generosity of somebody else, of appreciating her kindness and generosity in that instance. And I think this is also um, a really important aspect of generosity, to have the ability to receive it, to receive it. because appreciation itself in, is also an act of generosity. If you if you think what it's like in your own experience when you've given something and it's been appreciatively received versus when you give something and it's just brushed off or rejected in some way. You know, so our appreciation, again, is a gift that we can give to someone. So I just, in case you think that, this, that David Knott is superhuman and... and you know, someone that we could never emulate. I'm just going to add a little digression to the story. So I said he had, he had no family and no ties. And this had been the situation for many decades. I don't think he'd ever been married and, you know, not really had many relationships or certainly not a long-term relationship in his life. And he was in, in Gaza, I think, again one time. And uh, the the situation was so intense and there was so much bombing that he, he really thought, this is it. I'm not going to come out of this situation alive. I, I'm sure that within the next couple of days I'm going to be killed. And he was really reflecting on you know, the, the, the presence, the, the uncertainty of things and uh, reflecting on the fact of his own death. And he, he thought, I, before, I, can't, I can't go without uh, sending an email to this person. He had met a woman at a, at a charity lunch just before he left England. And somehow this, this predicament of really thinking, this is it, I'm going to die, prompted him to send an email to her saying, I, just, I think I'm going to die here, but I'd just like, <laughs> like you to know that I think that you're really nice. <laughs> <laughs> And he said he would never have had the courage to take that risk had he not really thought, this is it, I'm going to die. And then he came, she emailed him back, and of course he survived. And uh, anyway, they're now married and they have a daughter. So, <laughs> so we all have our edges, and taking risks is good sometimes. <laughs> So, generosity, Dana. <laughs> it's the first of these ten paramis or perfections, or the six in Mahayana. And uh, one of the teachers who teaches very nicely, I think, on the paramis is Ajahn Suchito. And he says that paramis are potentials that we can make into guiding intentions in our lives. And he identifies three stages in the development of paramis, which I think are, are very useful, which he calls initiating, gathering, and completing. Uh, 
So he says, initiating a parami means just turning the mind towards it so that the quality becomes, is taken up as a, as a frame of reference in our lives. And then the gathering stage is when you apply the quality in the face of struggle or opposition. But it feel, and it, so you're doing it, but it feels like hard work. So I think this is what Khalil Gibran means when he says this, that there are those who give with pain and that pain is their baptism. I had a more colloquial quote from this that I got from the, somehow I think through Erin Treat, who's the um, teacher of the Sangha in Durango. She said, it's not generosity unless it hurts. This was a quote from a, a Vipassana practitioner. And uh, that's an interesting one to, comp- to contemplate. So there is something about developing a parami that requires a little bit of a stretch. So one of the, the, the Sangha in Durango, when I was there and we were talking about this, actually shared an example with me of uh, having been at a new job and feeling really, um, you know, he wasn't in a very good space that day. He was not particularly happy with the new job and he was feeling a bit resentful and a little bit on edge and hostile towards the, his new his new colleagues and workmates. And so at lunchtime, he went out and he bought himself a big bag of chocolate chip cookies to cheer himself up. And his plan was to come back and just feast on chocolate chip cookies all afternoon. And then as he was coming back to work, something something in him just sort of switched and said, hang on, this is not, you know, this is not such a great idea. And he just spontaneously offered shared the chocolate chip cookies with all the new all the people at this new job and he said his his whole perception of these people and the experience of being in that workplace just shifted just like that just from that changing the sense of i need this for me to uh sharing it so completion the third the third stage is when the quality becomes effortless and you can trust it to carry you through any situation. So Simone de Beauvoir said, what I consider true generosity, you give your all, and yet you feel as if it costs you nothing. One of my favorite quotations on generosity comes from Nisargadatta Maharaj, who um, has been quoted several times already on the retreat from his the collection of his teachings called I Am That. He says, I give eternally because I have nothing. To be nothing, to have nothing, to keep nothing for oneself is the greatest gift, the highest generosity. So that's a very high bar again. And how do we develop it? Well, Bonnie told us last night, <laughs> patient perseverance, <laughs> kanti parami, because the tradition says that the Buddha had spent many, many lifetimes perfecting all these qualities or developing these qualities to the point of completion. But there are already many um, beautiful ways that generosity is being cultivated by all of you right here, right now. So my first... Uh, recommendation is that we really notice and appreciate them take them in 
rejoice in them and participate in them. So that just allowing the mind, letting the mind take dana, generosity as one of its reference points. So one easy way to do this, of course, is the board, the whiteboard in the dining room. It's really beautiful to see uh, all the different offerings and dedications that people um, that people make to offer the the meal dana, and we can all share in the the enjoyment of that and the blessing of that. We can uh, have mudita appreciate and um, participate vicariously with our appreciation. And then there's also the practice of sharing merit at the end of our meditation. So you know, many of the meditations, or carol, for example, and often you know, we, we will dedicate the wholesome energies of our practice to other beings. And maybe many of you have a practice of actually doing that intention before and after a sitting or a, a day of practice anyway. And also the, the sharing of metta, at the end of the day, if you do the chanting. This is another beautiful way to cultivate generosity. And then we can also notice the presence and absence of stinginess and self-centeredness. And this is one way that the the hindrances frequently come up. And we can also therefore notice and appreciate when they're not there. When there's, an abs- when there's an absence of stinginess in the heart. This is what the Buddha had to say about stinginess. Is stinginess a word in American English as well? Okay, good. <laughs> I just don't think I've ever heard a, an American friend talk about being stingy. <laughs> so he said, No one can enter and abide in the first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth jhana, nor can one realize stream entry, once return, non-return, or arahantship, without abandoning five mindsets. Which five? Stinginess with regard to one's dwelling place, one's dharma friends, one's material gains and one's status, and ingratitude. So no one can realize any of these things without abandoning five mind steps. Stinginess with regard to one's dwelling place, stinginess with regard to one's dharma friends, stinginess with regard to one's material gains and one's status and ingratitude. And of course this teaching is being given to monks, so these are the things that the monks have that they can be stingy about. But a lot of that that actually um, is totally applicable to us on retreat. So one example of how this kind of stinginess might manifest on retreat would be in the comparing mind, which is for many of us, and I am not exempt, a source of a lot of suffering. So thoughts like, are they doing it better than me? Or am I doing it better than them? So when I was a, a novice Nana Amravati, I remember one breakfast time, we used to have these sort of 
formal breakfast where the whole community would gather and sometimes monks would share, especially the sort of senior monks who'd spent um, time in Thailand back in the days of Ajahn Chah would share stories about their practice. And I remember one of them talking about um, being a young monk in Thailand uh, out in the, probably at Wat Pananachat or Wat Papong, Ajahn Chah's monastery in a kuti. With, and the, so the monks all had these meditation huts called kutis and walking paths near the kuti. And there was another young Western monk near him as well. And they would both be out there diligently walking on their walking paths and they were doing this day after day. And he really started to get the vibe, you know, this they were they were sort of there was a sense of like who's walking longer? Mm. Who's walking more mindfully? Who's walking better? Who's walking slower? And there was this real sort of vibe building up between them. Like both of them I think could feel the energy of there's this, this sort of, you know, eyeing each other, sizing each other up. And then one of them suddenly got really fed up with it with it and said to the other one look mate there's room for both of us in nibbana (laughs) (laughs) but don't we find ourselves thinking i've got to get there first you know sometimes (laughs) or or somehow that you know if they get there there's i'm not there's not going to be enough for me i mean how daft is that but this is this is this is a habit that the mind has. So what if we shift our orientation, if we catch even a little whiff of something like that happening, what if we shift to a bodhisattva orientation? What if our aspiration were to see everyone else in this hall walk through the door before us? How would that change things? Can we be non-stingy about our practice and what would that do to the comparing mind and the competing mind? So Shantideva, who was the the great Tibetan Buddhist teacher, who, I think he's Tibetan, Indian, thank you. Okay, so yeah, pre-Tibetan, but who wrote the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. There's a quote from him that he says, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and I give it to others. <laughs> so what's it like to approach our sitting or our practice with the thought, rather, I've got, rather than the thought, I've got to get this or, or I want to get this or achieve this or do that but rather just the thought, I'm doing the best I can and I'm offering it, I'm making it my offering to the world. How different does that feel? So this is, this is very much in my consciousness, often if I'm giving a talk, so one of my beloved teachers and mentors, Kitty Saro, who's a, a former monk as well, he, when I was sort of beginning to give talks and I was really, really nervous about it, he would say, Jaya, just remember you're making an offering. You're doing the best you can and you're making an offering. And that's such a, a helpful, helpful mindset to hold with anything that we're undertaking in life. We do the best we can and we make it an offering. 
And the same with our practice. We're doing the best that we can and we make it an offering. So giving, giving of ourselves is actually the true meaning of the word to surrender. And maybe, you know, maybe that, again, words work for some of us and not others in different ways. But I like the idea of surrender in my practice. And I don't know if, you, if you've been to Spirit Rock, you'll know that at the bottom of the drive there, there's a sign, a yield sign yellow and black yield sign and it says yield to the present so we surrender to the present another quote from another Frenchman Albert Camus he says real generosity towards the future lies in giving all to the present so what what shall we surrender because I'm saying giving ourselves, and we've been saying that they're not really there to be found, we could surrender our greed, we could surrender our hatred, we could surrender our delusion, just surrender the defilements, let go of our resistance. Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, who is a, a was one of the great Thai forest masters and Guy Armstrong's teacher. And used to love the summary of the, the teaching that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me or mine. He would say that practice is giving it all back to nature, giving back what we've mistakenly appropriated as our own. Just give it back to nature. And Buddha Dasa is the name that he chose for himself. So it wasn't his original monk's name. He gave him, he chose the name Buddha Dasa because it means servant of the Buddha. So his, his orientation was to give himself completely in the service of the Dharma, give himself completely to the path of the Buddha. And I think that all, all the great teachers and masters no matter how different their teaching style or the, the form that their practice took or takes, share this one thing, this level of willingness to surrender and to give themselves completely to the practice. So Ajahn Chah um, had a favorite mantra that we used to um, chant often in the monasteries, I think in the forest sangha monasteries from him that people use this mantra a lot and in it, you would, we would chant it in English and then in Pali but the English says to the Buddha I go for refuge giving my life to realize Nibbana to the Dharma I go for refuge giving my life to realize Nibbana to the Sangha I go for refuge giving my life to realize Nibbana And in the evening chanting in, a, in the Theravadan monasteries, also this is part of the evening chanting. To the Buddha, I dedicate this body and life. To the Dharma, I dedicate this body and life. To the Sangha, I dedicate this body and life. And I think this mixture of faith, 
devotion and um, and giving or generosity is hugely um, supportive for our practice. And it's, you know, we walk past every time that we come into the Dharma Hall, we walk past this beautiful archetypal image of the giving of one's life, of the sacrament, the stained glass windows. And the Buddha said, there is what is offered and what is sacrificed. And I love this word sacrifice as well, because it means to make something sacred. So we're giving things up, making them sacred in the service of freedom. And there's a big difference, a world of difference between generosity and giving things in order to get rid of them because we don't want them anymore. (laughs) And this is something that I've reflected on a lot personally because uh, I became a nun when I was 29 and I gave away... Uh, I gave away everything that I had when I did that. And in some ways that was a beautiful thing to do, but there was a lot of Vipava Tanha in what I was doing, as I you know, re- have realized over, over the subsequent time. Uh, so giving things away to get rid of them because you want out is not generosity. <coughs> And, you know, many of you possibly at some stages in your practice paths and lives have found yourself wanting to simplify your life in some way. And I just, with the benefit of my own hindsight, if that's what you do at any point, I really encourage you to really uh, do it with mindfulness (coughs) and care and not from a place of above a tanha, but take that opportunity. Okay, I have things that I don't need. How can I how can I use them in the most joyful and beneficial way? So I know Sally in a talk earlier in the retreat talked about this family who who decided to um, halve their house and <coughs> gave the rest away to charity. And I've actually read the book of, um, it's called The Power of Half by the daughter and the father of this family. And I sort of think, I wish I'd read that book before I before I became a nun because I could have had so much more joy out of what I was doing. It could have been so much more beautiful. So getting rid of stuff is not generosity in this sense. And it's the same with giving ourselves. So trying to get rid of ourselves, as Winnie said so brilliantly when she was talking about Vibhava Tanha, is like trying to go through the exit door before we've done the job. It doesn't work. And really it won't work because we haven't actually got to the point where we can see that there isn't a door to go through and there's nobody, nobody to go through it. And so we can't perfect, I think we can't perfect any, any of the paramis without somehow perfecting the others at the same time. And it's really true that patient endurance that Oni was talking about last night is what enables them all to develop. But it's also really worth remembering that the first and most basic one of the paramis is generosity. 
So my suggestion, possibility that I'd like to offer you is to consider that whatever you're focusing on in your practice, see if you can let generosity be like a bass note underneath or a background hum. So rather than getting rid of the defilements, we can sacrifice them. We can really make them sacred until they're all given away, until there's no place for clinging to hold, to take hold anymore. Is that not a more joyful approach to practice? So to repeat, I'm going to end with the, uh, this quote from Nisargadatta again. I give eternally because I have nothing. To be nothing, to have nothing, to keep nothing for oneself is the highest generosity. And Dilgo Kyense Rinpoche, when we realize the selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the, other, the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.